0: Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit, and I trust that you have enjoyed, as I have, uh, the preaching of our other pastors, Nathan Winners and Paul Grants, and the, our director of music, Troy Summers, over the last few weeks. Um, it is good to hear from them, and it also gave us an opportunity in the background to prepare for VBS coming in and for the carpenters and all the other things. So uh, very grateful for them. If you're visiting with us this morning, you are uh, joining us in a succession of sermons uh, that is preparing our church, Capital City Church, for a multi-year preaching series that is going to walk through the entire life of Christ. We'll be in all four Gospels bringing them together and teaching that which our Lord has taught. We're really looking forward to that. Lord willing, we'll be starting that series this Christmas, uh, as I have been saying. Uh, The Lord's Day lands on December 25th this year, and so we're excited to begin that series on the life of Christ on that day. Our current series, though, leading up to the life of Christ, is titled Anticipating the King, show how our Old Testaments foresee foresee the coming of a king who will deal in righteousness and justice. Amen? So if you're visiting, that's where we're at and uh, excited uh, to be with you this morning. Today's sermon marks the end of a six-week-long sub-series that we have titled Beginnings. And so the Uh, We have a a number of small series within this series, Anticipating the King, that is moving us towards Christ's coming. Uh, And uh, this marks the end of beginnings. It marks the ends. It marks the end of Genesis. In it, we have studied this series on beginnings. We have studied how God created the apple of his eye when he created Adam and Eve in his image, right, bringing Uh, incomprehensible value to human life. Um, He set Adam, we saw, uh, the man over creation to have dominion over it, giving him the responsibility to name every created creature, including his wife. We have seen that Adam gave up his dominion to another created being, a crafty and deceiving serpent, right? Right? We uh, know later in scripture that serpent is a fallen angel. And his name is Satan. And when Adam disobeyed God, his sin brought the curse of death to all of creation. However, God promised that he would bring about a child that would bruise the head of Satan and one day take back the dominion over the earth that Adam had willfully given up. We have seen generations or genealogies and And we have not read through them, and you can say, praise God at this point, we have not read through them. All right, have some more coffee. We have not read through them, but we have seen them. (laughs) We have seen them carefully uh, laid out and recorded as Adam's family was looking for that promised child of Genesis chapter 3. We remember that after some time, all humanity became exceedingly wicked, except Noah, and in God's justice, he judged all of creation with a worldwide flood. As the world repopulated, we studied that God chose a man named Abram to bring forth Adam and Eve's promised child. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham and said to him in Genesis 12, verse 3, in you, that is, Abram. All the families of the Earth will be blessed. We learned that Abraham had nothing short of a miraculous son named Isaac at the age of 100. Both Abraham and Isaac gave evidence that they had believed that unconditional covenant when they, in Christ-like fashion, fashion right, chose to sacrifice Isaac on that altar. We've seen that Isaac survived that day, proving to be the promised son through whom the promised child to Adam and Eve would come. And last week we saw that Isaac would have sons, Esau and Jacob. And after stealing his father's blessing and wrestling with God, Jacob's name was changed to Israel and is chosen as the one whose child will one day take dominion back from Satan. The New Testament calls the God of this world, the God of this world. As we get ready for today, you'll remember that Israel had 12 sons through four different women. Now, I want to pause here for just a second and talk to you unmarrieds. This is not a good idea. Twelve sons, okay? Okay four different women, not okay. We're not going to go over that story, but I'm going to tell you it does not work out well. Israel had 12 sons through four different women. Genesis 35, verse 22 through 26, uh, makes it very nice for us, records them all in succession, and says this, Now there were 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, and Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, were Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, are Gad and Asher. Now, the question that we should be thinking about and should be resounding in our minds is which child of these twelve will the promised seed the promised son of Adam and Eve come through as we march towards a time and a coming of a king who will rule and reign in righteousness? Well, beloved, that question will be answered in our text today, chapters 37 through 50. So if you're not there, you can turn over to Genesis chapter 37 through 50. There's no way you're going to be able to keep up with me. I've never preached in my life 13 verses, let alone 13 chapters. So hang on. You can go there if you want. I've got a lot of scriptures uh, in our, uh, for our board today, so you can just follow along, or you can try and keep up, whatever you like. But chapters 37 through 50, these chapters are a historical narrative of how God providentially kept his promise to Adam and Eve through his covenant with Abraham and the horrific events of his great-grandson, Joseph. Although Joseph is the focus of Genesis 37 through 50, it is not his children whom the promised child to Adam and Eve will come. We might ask, well then, why in the world are 13 chapters so dedicated to a person? And we're gonna see that today and the answer to that. Joseph's righteous life, like Christ, is only the means by which God will save the chosen family of Israel. It is after that saving that the scripture tells us which of Joseph's brothers, the anticipated king, will come through. In short, you might remember this, Joseph's life is a story of God's providence and God's promise to save many, to save many. Amen? First, let's take a look at God's providence in saving Israel's family. Providence is defined in Merriam-Webster and other theological books, Merriam Webster, of course, is a dictionary, but he was a Christian man. And I liked his definition. It says uh, this about providence how it is how God is sustaining and guiding human destiny. There's a slight difference between God's sovereignty and his providence. God, God's sovereignty, it's his right. He created all things, he is able, he is powerful, and he does get to do what he wants to do. However, right, he is. Or because he is God. He is sovereign. He is over all things. Providence, however, is a little bit different. It is the outworking of how God is choosing to work inside of humanity. So it is the providence of God, whether you understand it or realize it this morning, that you are here this morning. There is something, although many human actions caused us to be here this morning in decisions, right? But God... For sure, 100% in each individual's life here this morning is providentially working for some reason and in some way to have you in this spot. And that is what's happening in the life of Joseph. So I would say that God exercises his sovereignty over creation through providence, through providence. Let's take a look how Joseph was providentially beloved by his father, Israel. And how that love both divided the family and ultimately saved it. Ultimately saved it. One might think that growing up in a home where Israel's father, that was Isaac, loved Esau more than him, that Israel or Jacob would not repeat the same favoritisms that caused such division in his own home. Why is it that that happens to us in humanity so often? We repeat the types of behaviors that we saw in our home. And we may even despise those behaviors. But yet, for some reason, we often repeat them. If we go back to Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 through 28, we see Jacob at this point. His name has not yet been changed to Israel, but we see his family uh, and the division taking form. It says this of Joseph's father and, uh, in, in Genesis 25. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob, now named Israel, was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac, pay attention, what's the word there? Loved Esau because he, that is Isaac, had a taste for game. And Esau was a hunter, right? But Rebekah loved Jacob. Why? Likely because he hung around the camp, and I don't know if he was a mama's boy or what, but I don't know how that works. I can tell you in my family, although it's not divisive, Matthew likes to hang around his mom more. Justin doesn't like to hang around me at all, so I lose everything. <laughs> in our home, you're the mama's boy or you're nothing, I guess, but but look at that, division that is beginning uh, to rise up, and some of the selfishness. Um, we see here that Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. It's interesting, right? Not because he loved his personality or anything else, and we maybe begin to peek into Isaac's life here and the self-centeredness of it, just a hair, right? He's not in love with Esau just because he likes him or he likes his personality, but what, the Scripture says, because he likes eating game. And we know that Isaac, no doubt, is, he's a herdsman, he's a shepherd, and, and man, if you've got to eat some of your herd, well, that probably costs you a little bit of money, right? Well, I have this wonderful son who is a skillful hunter and likes to go out, and, and guess what, I kind of like to eat that. Anyway, we see the division beginning where Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. It seems as if Jacob, that is Israel, is not only a mild mannered man, always wanting peace, he is likely a very selfish and passive man, letting his children get away with sin. Now, we don't always have every detail, and the scripture is not trying to give us every detail about every person. So, as I walk, through these things that seem to be missing in the text, they're kind of conjecture. They might be a thing, they may not be a thing, but it is odd that they're missing. And Jacob seems to be uh, passive, and he seems to be very selfish, letting his children get away with sin. A quick review of his life until chapter 37 reveals that Israel seems to have been silent, watching Leah and Rachel battle this out, right? This, This division that's in the home. You hear nothing, at all from jacob additionally he seems to have been awkwardly silent when his daughter dinah was raped and his presence was notably absent as his sons manipulate and murder a whole city's men over her abuse beloved this passivity and desire for peace should remind us as parents and listen here as kids of what proverbs 29 15 says the rod, this is correction, right? If You can imagine in my house. When was this? In 1997, I think. I had the, the, the great opportunity to go hunt in, in South Africa with my father, and, and we did some hunting, and that's great. I like to do those things. Uh, but when I was there, I purchased this ironwood spoon, and it was perfectly cupped like a hand like this. It had a pretty long rod attached to it. And we found very quickly that it was the best spanking tool ever. It had a little bit of weight to it, right? And then it made a lot of noise, right? Really, I don't know how much it really hurt, but it just sounded bad, right? Most of the time, we did not have to spank Matthew Because he was so afraid of the rod that he was bawling before we ever got started. It was awesome. Tristan just gritted his teeth. Anyway, Proverbs 29, back to it. The rod and reproof, right? So physical pain, right? And reproof, telling your son, you are wrong. That is wrong. Do not murder. Do not sleep with my wife. Do not... Do all the things that Jacob's sons did. Don't do them. Reproof. Proverbs says that the rod and reproof gives wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame. A child who gets his own way brings shame. And there's something we can learn from the text, if it be so, whether it's true or not, that he is... Uh, that Jacob is passive, right, and that he is selfish. I don't know. All we can do is look at some of the clues. But what we do know is this. A child who gets his own way will bring shame to the family. Fathers, mothers, children, expect that you should be corrected. Do the correcting. Do it right. Do it consistent. Love your children while you do it. And your children will not bring shame to your name. Amen? Don't be passive parents. And the other thing we can learn is to not show favoritism. To not show favoritism. It divides. Now, after all the previous passivity that we've seen, we find Israel, who himself had been at the center of the division caused by family favoritism. He is now committing the same foolishness with his sons. And guess what? It is causing the same problems. You guys have heard this said, and I think we're all guilty of it. Aim for the same thing, get the same results. So I'll have you, I'll wake you up again since I know there's no coffee in here, right? Aim for the same thing, get the same results, right? He has observed his father and the favoritism and the division that it brought into the family. He is now going to express that same kind of favoritism, and it's guess what? It's going to bring the same kind of division, the same kind of division. Genesis 37.3 says, Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons. He's committing the same sin, the same struggle that his father did, because he was the son of his old age. The son of his old age is a reference to Israel's age when Rachel, his first love, would finally conceive and bear Israel's first son by her, that is Joseph, who we're going to be spending the rest of our time talking about. After I fix this time clock, it tells me, hurry up. Hold on. Act like you didn't see that. So, here we are. The son of his old age is a reference to Israel's age when he has Joseph by his first love, Rachel. And the rest of the verse reveals that so loved was Joseph by Israel that he made him a very colored tunic. Some of your translations are going to say a coat of many colors, something like that. And the idea is that... That uh, uh, that Israel has taken the time and he has built a tunic. Most of the tunics in that age were built really for work, and the arms were cut off, and they were cut off at about the knee, so you could work and lift up your legs and do things like that. But but for somebody who was royalty or somebody who was uh, not going to work so much, the coat would come down to the arm and it would extend down to the ankles, and it would be. Uh, really both a symbol of that person's authority and also that they were not the ones who were going to do the what? The work. So this coat has been given to uh, Joseph, and he is wearing this coat. It is signifying that he does not have to work the way his brothers have to work, and it is causing division, this love that his father has for him. What exactly it looked like, we're not 100% sure. It's coat of many colors, so we just know that it signified him as the leader of the family. In short, Israel made Joseph nearly the youngest boss that they could have had in the family. Of course, Benjamin is alive, uh, but he is not in the field. All right, so first we have seen that favoritism, that love that Israel had for his son. Second, we see that not only was Joseph loved more by his father Israel, but that phasarotism, as we said, caused Joseph to be hated and rejected by his brethren. Genesis 37, 4 says this, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him. That's a strong word, right? They hated him and could not to him speak to him on friendly terms. Now, my mother always told me this, and I would imagine you have heard it this way or not. If you can't say something nice, go ahead, here's where you fill in. Don't say anything at all. Don't say anything at all. And we know uh, that Jesus would tell us in the New Testament that out of the abundance of the heart, right, the mouth speaks. And that heart is this idea of our internal language, right? I don't know if you're married or you will be someday or you have been for a long time, but I find myself, if I've been having an internal conversation with my wife for a week or two and haven't said anything yet, there's probably a problem, right? <laughs> when you need to have that internal language, needs to work its way out in a positive way, and the more you stew on that type of thing, often the heated, the more heated it gets. And so brother, uh, Joseph's brothers were to a point right? For they could not even speak to him on friendly terms, could not even speak to him on friendly terms. Beloved, the scripture is chocked full of warnings about our speech. Jesus said, that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. James in James chapter 3 verse 6 says this, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our mem- members As that which defiles the entire body and sets the fire, sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by what? Hell. James would go on or say earlier in the chapter that we should be quick to what? Listen, and slow to what? Speak, and slow to anger. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? Right? Don't get in a hurry to talk. If you'll just listen to somebody's full thing, oftentimes that which we've been meditating on or struggling on in our own hearts, they'll work their way out. Just give people time to talk. Be quick to listen, right? Be very slow to speak. Don't get in a hurry. Don't be thinking about what you're going to say before they're done speaking. (laughs) Be slow to speak. And I don't know if or anything like me, but I've experienced this no less than thousands of times in my life that when my mouth gets to running, I just get more and more and more angry, especially if I'm not listening well. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and you will be slow to anger. Slow to anger. So it is that Everything that starts in our heart has this potential of coming out in our language, and Joseph's brothers were so negative that they could not speak to him on friendly terms. And the Hebrew there, that not speak to him on friendly or peacefully to him, is the word shalom, right? They could not speak peace to him. Adding fuel to the fire of their hatred, Joseph is providentially given, Two dreams that show his family bowing down to him. Can you imagine that? Show his family bowing down to him. That would be completely outside of the culture of the time. The oldest generally is going to get the blessing and he is going to run the family, right? Now we have the youngest and he shows up, right? And he has this dream and I don't know if he's being prideful or not. I don't think so. It doesn't seem like Joseph's character uh, at all to be the type of man who would want to cause division. He's probably naive, At 17, it's just like, I had this amazing dream, and you all bow down to me. Go ahead and try it. Yeah, that'd make you a little nervous, and it should, right? You're going to bow down to me. So the dreams, he has two, one about his father and mother, and one about his brothers, and the youngest appears to be the one who they will bow down to. Notice. If you will, how the Holy Spirit guides Moses to make sure we understand the depth of his brother's hatred. In verse 4 of chapter 37, Moses writes that Joseph's brothers hated him. In verse 5, he writes, they hated him even more. And in verse 8, one more time, in just a matter of a few verses, Moses writes, for the third time, the Joseph's brothers hated him even more than the even more. That's a lot of hate. It's tied to their speech. It's tied to what they're thinking about. Joseph's tied to their selfishness. We can identify with all those things, can't we? The beloved, we see, though, that in God's providence, Joseph third. not only was Joseph providentially loved by his father, we see that he was obedient to his father, Israel's will. Genesis 37, 14 says, Then he, that's Israel, said to him, Joseph, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him, right, from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. He came to Shechem. I think one of the most difficult things for especially a teenager to do and sometimes even as adults We struggle with authority, and we don't want to do what we're told. But here we see the character of Joseph standing true. Listen, Joseph is no fool. He understands his brothers hate him. He quite surely understands the dynamic that is is going on within his family. And now his father, for whatever reason, be it selfish, be it fear, uh, we have seen that Joseph had already, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 37, had come back with a bad report of the two concubines' sons, and told his father, and that enraged them, of course. I don't think that Joseph is necessarily a tattletale. I just think his his conscience is is so raw that he cannot stand to see his father and mother's name put to shame in the countryside. And so here he is again. He is sent to now the crew of brothers, (laughs) brothers. And this is no small task, no small feat. He's being asked to walk about 50 miles as the crow flies. 50 miles. We might ask, why were those brothers so far away with the flocks? Maybe it's just that's where the food was at the time, or maybe uh, the whole reason that all this is happening is is, um, uh, that Israel understands that They should have been back by now. We don't know. We just really don't know. But we know that he's uncomfortable, and he's going to send Joseph to go find out what is going on. It's about a 50-mile walk. The average person walks about three miles an hour. So if Joseph never stopped, he would arrive at Shechem in about 17 hours. It's likely he did not walk straight through, and he probably spent a couple of days to make the journey. You can imagine maybe that I would send you out from here and say, Uh, head on over to Laramie that's about the walk and to be honest if you ever get a chance to go to Israel and I hope that you do you'll find that the terrain would be very similar to what is there. There are mountains there are hills, there are valleys and so although it's 50 miles as the crow flies you gotta go up those hills and you gotta go down those hills and use those valleys all of that would have given him plenty of time to allow fear to creep in fear to creep in. If I were him, I would likely have been thinking, I should not have shared those dreams, (laughs) right? All this time, I probably shouldn't have said a word about those dreams. And maybe as he's walking along, he might be thinking, man, I am in big trouble here. I'm heading to these, these ruffian group of men who hate me, and it has been very clearly pointed out, Maybe I should have not said a word about how they were acting before. Certainly all these type of fears would have, would have set in on Joseph. But yet he was willing to obey. It brings to mind this question. Have you ever been in a precarious position as a Christian? Knowing that if you were obedient to your heavenly Father's will, it was going to cost you. Maybe it would cost your friends, your job, or if you had been in a hostile country on a missions trip, it's very possible obedience to the Father could, like Joseph, cost you your life. Your life is something we can look at and we can know Joseph understands the scenario. He understands the danger. He understands his father is asking him to do something, puts him in a very bad situation with his brothers, and yet he is obedient To his father how are you doing in the obedience of your life young men and women are you honoring your father and your mother you've been in this situation how did you do did you rise up at whatever cost or did you shrink away and lose your Christianity beloved times are coming I'm telling you in America and in our culture that will no longer stand for biblical values that you could lose your livelihood over standing up and obeying your heavenly father. I don't think it's that far out, beloved. When you see the quote-unquote conservative party accepting uh, all these genders, when you see the quote-unquote conservative party saying no to biblical marriage, at some point in time, I preached this a number of months back, Right? We will be just like Canada, who has been on the same path where every conservative recently voted that you can no longer tell somebody they are not the gender that they have been born with. It's illegal. We're on that path, beloved. It may be a close time that if you're a lawyer in here, that if you choose to take the path of a biblical gender, you will lose your job. You will not have a firm. Beloved, as we return to Joseph, we see here that regardless of the danger, he was obedient to his father's will. After arriving at Shechem, he found that his brothers had moved to Dothan, another 12 miles to the north, and when Joseph arrived, his potential fears were realized. He had been obedient to his father's Israel's will, and he is now some 65 miles away in no accountability to what might ha- happen to him. And his motley crew of brethren hated him. All but two, Reuben and Judah, had murder in their hearts. And they talked to their brothers and they talked them out of selling uh, or killing Joseph and into just selling him into slavery. Selling him into slavery. Well, in a matter of 36 verses... Of God's providence, Joseph goes from being a doted, over-pampered son who would one day inherit the totality of the family's wealth to being betrayed and sold into slavery for a handful of silver, likely to never see his family again. You ever had a script built up in your life, speaking of God's providence, and you thought life was going to go this way? Certainly, Joseph is living in that world, He's got a pretty good idea of where he's headed. His father loves him. He's been given the coat of honor. He's not working in the fields, right? He is, he is learning the family business, thinking all will be well. And in his mind, in his heart, I don't think there's any malice here. He's thinking, I'm going to run this family. I have seen the dream. I have had the vision. And the next thing you know, in just a few days, he is sold into slavery and dragged to the south, into Egypt, never to see his family again. The next chapter, chapter 38, Genesis 38, verse 1, sometimes it seems a little out of place to us in the, in the events, uh, but in Joseph's betrayal, Judah was so affected that Moses takes the time and he writes this down and it came about at that time, and that's right after he is sold into slavery, that Judah, look at here, departed from his what? Brothers. He tried to say something about not having his brother murdered along with Reuben. He did. It. He made his effort, but I don't know what it is. Maybe this is a moment of, of repentance or fear or rejection. We don't know. But what we do know is that at this point, he departs. From his brothers. chapter 38 is nothing short of a clear view however of judah's immorality and as we think about we are following this line that is to to this promise that is coming from adam and eve and we must pay attention to why would judah show up here in the narrative and we find out just a little bit here in chapter 38 he becomes the father of twins the firstborn is perez and the second Zerah. unless we think this Odd story in the middle of the narrative of Israel and Joseph's life. is out of place. Let us consider Ruth. Ruth, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. It is yet another genealogy. I'm going to read this one, though. It's not that long. But let's peer into the importance of how God operates through wicked people. And we see that. If you read chapter 38, you'll see of Judah's wickedness. But God is working through wicked people to accomplish his providential will. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. This is Judah's son. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Why is Judah stuck in this? Narrative. we're going to see that it's his line in the end that is passed on and that promise of the king who is to come and rule and righteousness will come through Judah. Friends, the nine times removed great-grandson of wicked Judah is nothing or none other than King David who receives for himself an unconditional covenant that one day that promised child to Adam and Eve will take back dominion over the earth. Think about it. Trying to help us, right? They're moving us forward as we are readers of the Torah. Follow this line. Pay attention to what's going on with these people. Beloved, never forget regardless, though, of the broken, immoral, wicked things that we do. If we will pause, we can settle our hearts knowing that God is working through his Sovereign providence to accomplish his will. Amen? We all have struggles. We go through tragic things. I've heard of a couple just this morning in families, difficulties. We just have to pause and we just have to recognize God is working in it. We may not always see it. We get this great Cinderella story, don't we, in Joseph, where we get to see the end and a nation is saved, right? Many of you and I possibly will die and never understand the hardships that we go through. But I'm telling you, beloved, God has a plan. He is moving history down, down a path. And we must find our trust in, and our hope in him. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write one of the most comforting texts for the, the suffering Christians in Romans 8.28. It says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To who? Not to everybody, Right? but to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, Joseph was specifically called by God for a purpose. That purpose was to save his father Israel and his brothers from an international food crisis that would have wiped them off the face of the planet, putting an end to God's promise to regain dominion through Adam's sin. Time escapes us, but many of you know Joseph is sold into slavery to an Egyptian captain by the name of Potiphar. He cannot catch a break as Potiphar's wife lies about him and lands him in prison. However, after interpreting the Pharaoh's disturbing dream concerning seven years of bumper crops, right, of plenty, more than we need, followed by seven years of extreme uh, famine, Joseph, now 30 years old, you can do the math, been a slave and a prisoner for quite a while now is released and elevated to the right hand of the most powerful king in the world after the 7 years of plenty and 2 years of extreme famine Joseph is 39 years old when his brothers arrive in Genesis chapter 42 1 and 2 records how they get there it says this now Jacob saw that there was grain this is Israel right Israel saw that there was grain in Egypt and said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? (laughs) I don't know. It's kind of a funny term. Wish I knew Hebrew a little bit better and had the time I would have dug into that. I'm guessing he's saying, quit standing around here. We're going to die. Right? That's what he's saying. Stop looking at each other. Things are not well. Verse 2. He said, Behold, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Get moving. Why is it that we get so lazy? We don't see the things that are going on around us and we sleep our way to death. I often say to my boys, they don't appreciate it much, but I need it. I need to hear it as much as them. And that proverb that says, A little sleep... A little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and your destruction comes upon you. This is what Israel is saying. Wake up. Quit standing around here. Some of you woke up just then. That was amazing. Saw your heads pop up. And you thought, I am in trouble. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Wake up. Don't die. Get moving. Pay attention. Can't you see we're going to run out of food? And this begins one of the most heartwarming cat and mouse narratives in the Old Testament, a story of God's providence and how he used a 17-year-old pampered dreamer who was sold as a slave uh, by his brothers who hated him. In Genesis 45, verses 3 through 5, Moses records the intense providential moment when Joseph reveals himself to them. You can't read this story, beloved. I, I can't. I don't think there's ever a time that I've read through this narrative like I have to prep and not wept. And not wept. You've been a human for any length of time and just walked through it and you've experienced the tragedies and the struggles and and the desire to be accepted and the desire to be somebody and something. You can identify with this story. But in 45 verses 3 through 5, this is the moment that the dream God had given Joseph of his family bowing down to him begins to take shape. Verse 3, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. No doubt in their minds, they are thinking, how could that be true? Our father is going to find out that for 20 years we have been lying to him. I cannot imagine all the scheming going on in their minds and hearts and just thinking, oh man, are we in trouble? Verse four, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Preserve life. It was two years into this famine that was going to last seven and they were certainly going to die if they did not have Anything, and we begin to see God's providential plan taking shape. That this is how is not only is He going to save Israel and the family and the twelve tribes of Israel who will develop as we keep preaching through this series, but will also preserve life and eternity in the future. And a little later, He will once again say in Genesis 50:19 through 20, as they as their father had died, they were worried that He was going to do something very wicked to them. But Joseph seems to be, like Daniel, one of the godliest men that we'll read about in our Old Testament. says this, don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to save many people alive. Beloved, God providentially used Joseph's horrific circumstances to save a tribe of Hebrews that would become a nation would one day produce not just the savior of a family but the savior of the world well many of you know the story joseph's family moves to egypt survives the international food crisis and when israel is preparing to die all eyes are and ears are on him and we should be saying who is the seed going to come through that's what we're looking for that's what we've been following through all the genealogies and, and Here comes the question, one patriarch is dying and he is going to give a blessing and they are wondering what's going to happen. And Israel begins to prophesy to his family, saying uh, each to each one of them why they are disqualified. We come to Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, and after Reuben and Simeon are rejected, we get to verse 8 and it says this, Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. You think, well, okay. That's cool. Here it comes. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. How interesting. The story starts 13 chapters ago with a young boy having a vision of his brothers and his father and mother bowing down to him, putting him in a place of prominence that he might save. And here we are. God is now going to make it clear through Moses that your father's sons, Judah, right, shall bow down to you. All of the tribe will honor you. He goes on now in more prophetic type of language. Judah is a lion's whelp and where we get this idea of coming from the the tribe, that Jesus would come from the, the tribe and the lion of Judah. Uh, Judah is a lion's well from prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lous down as a lion, and as a lion, who, who dares rouse him up? Who dares to rouse him up? Verse 10, a very important verse. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter was this ornate, smaller-looking spear that a king would have and hold, and it identified him as the king. It shall not depart, Judah, from you, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience, listen here, of the peoples, everyone. This king who is going to come and rule in righteousness and justice, all the peoples, not just the tribes of Israel, all the peoples will bow down to him. Consistent, we see this all the way through our Old Testament, That he will be a king. He ties his foal to the vine. Now speaking of a donkey, and oftentimes in this culture, that the king would arrive on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. It's a pretty early imagery of what's going to happen in about forty thousand years, right? and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Think of the imagery of Jesus Christ. His eyes are dull. This is kind of an interesting translation in the NASB. Most of your translation are going to say something like dark from wine and his teeth as white as milk. Beloved, so we see that God's providence saved Israel's family through horrific circumstances. And now we see that God's promise will come through the man Judah. In the end, God will have sovereignly and providentially saved millions of people from the slavery and the punishment of sin. Thank you for being patient. I know the service is a little longer today and we get ready to wrap up. I want us to pay close attention. As I prepared for this message, it was difficult for me just to switch gears and try to cover so much, but Warren Weersby is wonderful at taking a lot of content and breaking it down, and I so appreciated him. He said this. He said that it was unfortunate that often these 13 chapters get boiled down to a fascinating story involving a doting father, a pampered son, some jealous brothers, a conniving wife, and an international food crisis. However, he goes on to say, Mr. Wearsby, for the Christian, the story of Joseph is one of the richest illustrations of Jesus Christ, found in the Old Testament. Joseph is like Jesus in that he was beloved by his father and obedient to his will. He was hated and rejected by his own brethren and finally elevated to the place of suffering and to a powerful throne room, thus saving his people from death. In my study, I came across some notes that Arthur Pink, one scholar from a generation ago, came up with a hundred different parallels between Joseph and Jesus' life. Here, Wearsby boils it down, and we can say that God had so loved the world and so loved it that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him would have eternal life. We see throughout Uh, the New Testament, that Jesus is not here to do his will. He's obedient to the Father over and over and over. He will say, I did not come to do my will. I only say what the Father says. I only do what the Father says. Like Joseph, who walked into a horribly difficult situation, Jesus knew uh, from eternity that he would go in and feel as a human being all the difficulties of the situation but he was obedient to his Father's will. Jesus, like Joseph, would be hated and rejected by his own brother. We find in John chapter 1, right, that John begins to describe that Jesus came to his home, but his own would not receive him. It would reject him. And ultimately, he is elevated from the place of suffering, that cross, to a powerful throne room where he now, like Joseph, sits at the right hand of the Father you put your faith in Christ. The Bible teaches that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one of us that can do a single thing to save ourselves. Not a single thing. Yet Christ takes himself out of the throne room of heaven, takes on humanity, takes your punishment for you. He is rejected by his brethren. He is suffering at the cross, a real suffering. He dies, but death cannot overcome Jesus. He is the one that Adam and Eve had been promised that will one day rule and reign. The Bible says that if you confess your sin, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from God's coming wrath on sinners. Beloved Joseph's righteous life like Christ was only the means by which God saved the chosen family of Israel. Joseph's story is the story of God's providence and God's promise to save many. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and I thank you for these faithful people, Lord, who have come to hear what it has to say. God, I pray by your spirit, that you will be convicting people of the sin that is in their lives, that you will help them to identify with the struggles of Joseph, that they might see the the hope in Jesus, that they might turn to you, Lord, if they know you and and walk in more intimacy with you. And those who do not know you this morning, Lord, I pray that they would utterly turn from the life they are living and turn to you, that you might give them new life. Lord, we thank you for all those who have helped this week. I, I can't even begin, Lord. I'm, I'm so grateful that you know each one of them and the hearts of which they have served. I pray you bless them. I pray that you would give safety to them as they move their way back to North Carolina. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping and, and serving Cheyenne as a community. God, I pray that you would continue to help us to grow, to teach people about you. Lord, we love you.